Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 11. And as you find your place, you know, one of the frustrations that you inevitably experience as a parent is the struggle for your child's independence. For example, your child wants a cup of milk, and so you say, okay, I'll, I'll be right back. And they say, no, I want to do it. Right? I want to do it. And certainly kids have to learn to do things and be able to function on their own, but their desire to be self-sufficient almost always precedes their ability to be self-sufficient. And so the child grabs the full gallon of milk with both arms, balancing it against their chest, and, and they begin to pour. And immediately, milk goes anywhere and everywhere except in the cup. And so in the end, I still have to pour the milk, just like I should have to begin with, but now I also have a big mess to clean up on top of that. Now, I share this not because I'm venting about any experience from this last week, but because there is a spiritual analogy here. You see, there are times in our own lives when we try to act independently from God. God says in his word that he's going to do something, but we decide that we can take care of it on our own. Or there are times when God calls us to do something, but, but we get a better idea. We, we can do it better in our way or in our timing. But just like a little kid with the milk, when we decide to take spiritual matters into our own hands, we inevitably make a big mess. And this morning, we're going to read about an instance of this as Abram and Sarai try to force God's promise to happen on their own with disastrous results. So we're in Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And so last week we saw that the Lord sealed his promises to Abram to give him innumerable offspring who would inhabit the promised land by making a covenant with him. And yet, as we move into chapter 16 this morning, we see that nothing has changed. In fact, we we come to the 10-year mark and nothing has changed. Sarai has still been unable to bear children. 
We remember from chapter 12 that Abram was 75 years old when the Lord called him to leave the area of Haran and go into the promised land and first gave him the promise of offspring. So Abram is now 85 years old at this point, which means that Sarai is 75 and counting, right? Sarai doesn't have a child. What she does have is an Egyptian servant named Hagar. And when we say servant, we're not, we're not talking about a common slave. Hagar is, is Sarai's personal attendant, much like a, a lady's maid would have been back in Victorian England. As the days have gone by and, and weeks have turned into months that have turned into years, it eventually occurs to Sarai, and, and she shares with Abram, that it just might be that they obtain children by, by having Hagar become pregnant in her place. And she tells Abram to pursue this opportunity. Now, if this seems like an odd idea to you, which it probably should, uh, then it might help us to know that this was actually not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. If a, if a wealthy woman was unable to have children of her own, she could take one of her servants and, and give her to her husband. And if the servant had a baby, then from a legal standpoint, the child would be considered to be the wife's. So culturally speaking, this would have been viewed as a valid move. And to their credit, while the Lord has been clear that Abram is going to have a son, technically speaking, he, he didn't say that Sarai would necessarily be the mother. And so once again, we have a husband and a wife haggling over what God has said and what to do about it. Right, God said we're going to have a baby, but nothing is happening. We're not getting any younger and other people have addressed this problem in this way. And unfortunately, there's no indication here that, that Abram asks the Lord, hey, is this what we're supposed to do? Like, is this, is this how we might come to have the baby that you have promised us? No, instead, they decide to make a move on their own, and Sarai gives Hagar to Abram as a wife. Now, later on in the Bible, a woman in this situation will be known as, as a concubine, a, a servant who relates to the husband uh, as more than a servant, but without shame, sharing the same status as uh, the official legitimate wife. Now, you know, and I know, that this is not going to go well. All right, this plan is designed to fail. This sounds like a, a daytime talk show episode in the making. But even if we didn't already know that, there are a number of indications here in the text that this is not a good plan. For one, Moses, the, the author, you'll remember, emphasizes this through repetition. Right, we already know that Abram and Sarai are married. And after being told for the first time in verse 1, we also know that Hagar is Sarai's servant. But six times in these opening three verses, the text repeats the relationship that each one of these persons has with the other. Right? We get wife, servant, servant, wife, servant, husband. And I think the point of that repetition is that Moses is emphasizing that this is not how this is supposed to work. Right? Abram has a wife, and Sarai has a servant, and all of those relationships should stay exactly as they are. Additionally, the, the phrase at the end of verse 2 that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai immediately points us back to the only other place that this statement is found in the Bible, which is in the aftermath of, of Adam's and Eve's sin in the garden. You'll remember that as the Lord confronts Adam about what has happened, he tells him, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. 
And so Abram going along with this plan is worded in a way that has a strongly negative connotation. And then finally, in the same way that Eve took the fruit and then gave it to Adam, so now Sarai takes Hagar and gives her to Abram, her husband. And so for us as readers, there are all kinds of textual alarms going off here that that indicates this is not right. Of course, there's nothing that we can do about it except to to read on and see what happens next as we pick up again beginning in verse 4. It says, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So picking up again in verse 4, Abram and, and Hagar get together, and sure enough, she conceives. But it quickly becomes apparent that this plan is not the solution that everyone thought it would be. You see, when Hagar realizes that she is pregnant with Abram's child, she begins to look at Sarai with contempt, and she acts differently toward her. So there's a a change in the tone of her voice. There's a difference in the way that she walks around. There's a cheekiness in the way that she accomplishes her daily chores. And there's a a subtle but but noticeable sarcasm in the way that she speaks to Sarai that that lets her know that she thinks she's better than her. And so, uh, really, what we translate as look with contempt is actually the word dishonor, as in the type of behavior in regard to Abram and his family that the Lord has promised to curse. I will curse those who dishonor you. And so as this situation unfolds, as you might expect, Sarai is not happy. And in verse 5, she goes to Abram and essentially says, well, I hope you're happy. And you might think, "Well, well, wait a second, this was all your idea. But no, Sarai says, this is all your fault. May the Lord judge between you and me. And of course, it's not that she is upset that Hagar is pregnant. That was, that was the whole point. The, the problem is that Hagar's new attitude is beginning to disrupt the household. And Sarai holds Abram responsible for that to the point where she calls for divine judgment against him. Now, in my mind, the appropriate response to this would, would be something along the lines of, look, we got ourselves into this, and so now we've got to try and figure out a way to make this work. But instead, Abram seems to be completely disinterested and essentially says, look, she's your servant. Do whatever you want to with her. If you think you need to bring her down a couple pegs, do it. Regardless of the fact that this woman is carrying his child, the child that he has been hoping for, uh, Abram is is completely passive in terms of of resolving or or bringing some type of order to this situation. And so we see at the end of verse 6 that Sarai begins to treat Hagar harshly. And we don't get specifics on what exactly that meant. Uh, But in some way or ways, Sarai becomes intentionally and unreasonably difficult to work for, perhaps even abusive. And whatever it was, it's bad enough that eventually Hagar gets to the point where she decides to run away. 
which is no small thing because a a single pregnant woman in the ancient world going off on her own had a a small chance of surviving for very long. So as expected, this whole plan has turned into one big hot mess. Once again, we're going to see some divine intervention when it is most needed as we pick up again beginning in verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beir Laha Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And so Hagar has fled to get away from Sarai. Uh, It's not clear whether she has a specific destination in mind or whether she's just walking until she gets somewhere. But in verse 7, we see that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, although we don't know exactly where that was. And the angel asks her where where she's come from and where she's going, and Hagar tells him that she is fleeing from Sarai, her mistress. Well, in verse 9, the angel instructs her to go back to Sarai and to submit to her. Now, when we went through 1 Peter last year, we spent four weeks looking at the expectation that we should submit to God-ordained authority, whether that be with the government or, or in the workplace or in the family or even in the church. And here, we see the first expression of this expectation as the angel tells Hagar to go back into what is a most awkward and difficult situation. And then in verse 10, the angel gives Hagar the promise that he will multiply her offspring so that they cannot be numbered in the exact same way that the Lord has promised for Abram's, uh, for Abram's offspring. Now, the way the angel speaks in the first person here, I will do this, as well as the way that Hagar responds to him in verse 13, has sparked a lot of debate about who this angel is. And so the the, the angel of the Lord occurs 48 times in the Old Testament. And sometimes it seems like the angel is just a normal angel bringing a message from God. And then sometimes it really seems like the angel is the Lord himself taking on some kind of visible form. And there are good arguments for understanding both of those positions. Uh, I don't think that, that there's really any way to know for sure which one it is. But as interesting as it is to think about, uh, the, the fact is that the bottom line uh, is that regardless of, of who it is, the message is the same. And, and it's coming from God ultimately. So Hagar is to go back and to serve Sarai with the promise that her descendants will eventually become a great nation 
of their own. Then in verses 11 and 12, the angel provides more information and a prophecy about who Hagar's child is going to be. He tells her that she is going to have a son and that he is to be named Ishmael, which means that God hears. And the reason for this name is because the Lord has heard Hagar in her affliction. But then the angel refers to him as a wild donkey of a man. And that imagery of a wild donkey is is explained and that he is going to be in perpetual conflict against those around him. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and dwelling over against all his kinsmen. So Derek Kidner, the, the, the British Old Testament scholar, makes the observation that while the promised offspring of Abram is going to bring, bring blessing to all the world, uh, this child is going to bring conflict and strife. Now in verse 13, Hagar gives the Lord a name. She calls him El Roy, which means the God who sees. And she does that because she recognizes that God has seen her and has revealed himself to her. And I think the significance of this is that Hagar is a, a servant. She's a slave. She has been treated like a piece of property, and and yet God sees her as a person, as someone who has been made in his image and who is worthy of dignity despite her station in life. And again, he has revealed himself to her here. And so the place where this meeting takes place happens, comes to be known as Bir Laha Roi, which means the well of the living one who sees. And it's said to be between Kadesh and Bered, although again, we are unsure of that exact location. So Hagar goes back, and in verse 15, we fast forward a few months. She does, in fact, give birth to a son, and Abram, as the father, gives him the name Ishmael. And so I think we have to assume that Abram is very surprised to see Hagar come back, and as she explains what has happened to make her come back, she tells him about the angel and and the, the name of the child and who he's going to be. And so uh, Abram follows the angel's instructions. And then at the very end of the chapter, we see that Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And so in our passage this morning, Abram and Sarai spill the milk. They spill the milk. The Lord has promised to give Abram a son, but they decide to try and make it happen in their own way and try to take matters into their own hands, and they end up making a big mess. And I assume that you have heard about the gift that keeps on giving. Well, this is the mess that's going to keep on messing uh, as, as this works its way out throughout the rest of the Old Testament and in many ways continues to impact the world that we live in even today. But it's easy for us to read a story like this and, and roll our eyes at the foolishness of Abram and Sarai without considering how often we are exactly like them. Friends, it's not uncommon for God to have spoken in his word, but instead of of waiting for his timing or doing it in his way, we decide to take matters into our own hands, and we risk making a big mess in the process. And kids, and youth in particular, if you're here this morning, I want to give you specifically a loving admonition as you have your whole life in front of you. And I want to to encourage you that God doesn't need your help to accomplish his plans for you. And so as you seek out his will for your life, which, which we certainly hope you will do, you're going to come into situations where you will be tempted to lie 
or to cheat or to cut corners in order to get where you want to go in life instead of conducting yourself honorably and trusting the Lord to open the doors that he has for you. But I want you to know that it's not worth that. You are going to meet someone, and even even though the Lord calls us to be spiritually compatible with our spouses, she is going to be so pretty, or he is going to be so sweet, that in our minds we will assume that it's okay and it'll all work out in the end, But I want you to know that it's not worth it. When we try to act independently of God, we make big messes for ourselves. Friends, Jesus warns us that being faithful to him will cause us to experience rejection from the world around us. But often we think to ourselves, you know, I I bet I can find a way to follow Jesus and still be approved by all of my unbelieving friends or family which inevitably means that we end up compromising our faith in some form or fashion. Or the Lord gives us a commandment. We decide, you know what, I'm going to do even better than that. And so we come up with all kinds of extra rules and regulations around the command that God hasn't actually given us. And we end up falling into legalism, which cuts us and others off from God's grace. Yes, it's easy for us to see this with Abram and Sarai, but we are often just as guilty. And really, as one commentator pointed out, we can be understanding towards Abram and and Sarai, right? They didn't have the rest of the Old Testament and and the New Testament to guide them in their decisions. They are the Old Testament. They're having to figure this out as they go. What's our excuse? Of course, the biggest way we get this wrong is with salvation itself. You know, in Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that this, this whole episode with Hagar is one, uh, it represents attempting to achieve God's saving purposes on our own instead of trusting in the promise. And how often that is true. People assume that they are good enough on their own to go to heaven. Or they come up with a, a bunch of different things that they want to do and hoops that they want to jump through in order to try to make them worthy of salvation. When God has provided all we need and all that he will accept for salvation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, for all the times that we've made a mess of things in our lives, God has, has laid the penalty for our sin on Jesus. And the only way we can be forgiven and reconciled to God is to trust the promise he has given us. If we neglect Christ and try to do this on our own, it's going to be one big eternal mess of judgment. And so church, when God has spoken, he doesn't need our help. And when we try to help, we end up making a big mess of things. And so in our lives and in our church, we should aim for nothing more and nothing less than what God has given us in his word. And so this morning, I pray that we will be faithful to do the things that God has called us to do, when he calls us to do it, in the way that he calls us to do it, and then trust him to do what only he can do in, in line of his perfect plan and wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning that as we, as we read this story, we have the opportunity to learn from it in a way that Abram and Sarai didn't. Lord, we, we thank you for the fact that you will accomplish your plans for us, whether it 
it is sooner or later, and we don't have to try and work it out on our own. And Father, for all the times that, that we have failed, we, we thank you for the fact that when we fail, it's not the end of the story, and that, that uh, as we continue through Genesis, we're going to see that you can redeem even our mistakes. Uh, but Lord, help us to know and to appreciate how much heartache and pain we can spare ourselves from by doing things your way. And so, Father, as we've heard from your word this morning, I pray that your spirit will impress your word on our minds and in our hearts. And as we take time to respond now, that you would lead us to respond in line with your word. Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.